You're listening to the NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 44. This is a special episode and a preview of more to come for next week. Today's guest is NASA Kepler mission project scientist, Natalie Battaglia. Natalie was recently selected for Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. We discuss her early career, the Kepler mission, and the life of an exoplanet hunter. This is all a nice preview for next week when NASA will host the Kepler Science Conference right here in Silicon Valley. So, as a special treat, instead of the normal podcast next week, we're going to release two conversations with other Kepler scientists and are doing a bit of a flashback to a previously released podcast recorded back in 2009 before the Space Telescope even launched. So, keep an eye on this feed next week for more Kepler updates, and let's now listen to our conversation with Natalie Battaglia. We really started off the same way. Uh, wanted to get to know you a little bit better. So how did you join NASA? What brought you to Silicon Valley? Oh gosh, that's a long story. <laughs> it's a long story. And I think it has something to do with looking at sunspots or spots. Uh, uh, well, that so, was my original research. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of us in those early days who were first discovering planets started out as stellar astrophysicists. Okay. And that's because... The way that you infer the existence of a planet is by observing some peculiarity about the star itself, right? So, for example, the wobble method, you're looking at the star wobble back and forth spectroscopically due to the tug of the planet that's orbiting it. Or in the case of Kepler, you're looking at a dimming of light that occurs, mm -hmm. a dimming of light of the star itself that yeah. occurs if a planet passes in front. So in order to infer the existence of a planet, you have to understand the star really, really well. And so were you already a part of NASA, like straight out of School, no, not or were at you all. working on the stuff before you came over? Like you're waiting for Bill Baruchy called you. And <laughs> no, to start I, call, working, I called or? him. Nice. Um, no, I, I. So I was a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz studying star spots on young suns, kind of like teenager suns. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we were using the Keck telescope, which had just been commissioned. In fact, my advisor built one of the premier instruments on the Keck telescope, and I used that to study these star spots on yeah. young suns. Um, and then went to Brazil for a short postdoctoral research fellowship there. Um, and, and in doing, as I was doing my postdoctoral research, I became aware of this idea that Bill Baruchy at NASA Ames had, <laughs> which was to use the transit method to find planets. And I knew also that he wanted to find not just giant planets, but mm -hmm. Earth-sized planets, which was something that hadn't been done. And so I was really interested in that because from my perspective of studying spots, I my first thought was, wow, you're seeing spots rotating in and out of view. That changes the total brightness of a star in and of itself. How can you disentangle the signal of a planet yeah. from a spot? Right. So I, I sent an email to Bill and asked him <laughs> about that. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, I'm really interested in this. I study spots on on sun like stars and I'm curious to know if that's an issue for you as you're planning out this or thinking about this new technique. Santa Cruz. So I'm guessing yeah. did you grow up in California? I did. You know I'm always a, looking at the stars and I'm wanting to product of uh, public education in California from <laughs> kindergarten all the way through nice. PhD. Yeah. 
I grew up in the East Bay, uh, did my undergrad at Berkeley and my grad at Santa Cruz. So And so, and I also imagine like when you went down to Brazil, that's a whole different set of stars from what you're, every, you're going to the <laughs> Southern Hemisphere. Down. Everything yeah. seems backwards. <laughs> How was that like? Very <laughs> strange. You know, here in the Northern Hemisphere, when we want to look at the Zodiac, for mm-hmm. example, or find the moon, you generally turn south. Yeah. Right? In the southern hemisphere, you have to turn north. So yeah. it's completely All your instincts backwards. are wrong. And like the Orion constellation, one of the most prominent in the sky that I'm used to seeing, uh, was upside down. So yeah. when you know you turn around north in order to see it, and even then it's strange because it's upside down. So that took some getting used to. But you're right; it does open up this whole new part of the sky. For you can't see the Big Dipper anymore, for example, because that's too far north. But in compensation, yeah. you get Alpha Centauri and the Southern Cross and the Colsack, the Magellanic Clouds. So many interesting things down there to see. Talk a little bit about when you first came over to Ames, when you first joined NASA. Um, yeah. I'm guessing Kepler was still in its like early stages at that point? It hadn't or? even been approved as a mission okay. yet. Yeah, in fact, it had been proposed to NASA uh, four times. This, yeah. They were about to submit, or they were writing a proposal, the fifth proposal. Okay. And the reason I came out is because in response to my email, Bill Baruki said, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> this issue of star spots confounding us it was exactly one of the reasons why our previous proposal was denied. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was something that a stellar astrophysicist who was at NASA headquarters at the time brought up as a potential issue. So he invited me to come and work on that problem. And so one of the first things I did was help to rewrite that section of the proposal. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so for the folks who, I mean, we, we talk a lot about Kepler. <laughs> we talk a lot about exoplanets, like, you know, on the podcast, we've had different people on your team, you know, here. Um, so give kind of the the overview what is Kepler Kepler what is Kepler for anybody who has no clue they're listening for the first time (laughs) well it's a space telescope Um, we call it a photometer photo photo meter photo is light meter is to measure so you're measuring light but with a space telescope you're using a mirror to collect a bunch of photons and you focus those photons onto a detector that turns the photons into a voltage and you measure mm-hmm. that as a number it tells you about the brightness um, but Kepler is NASA's was NASA's first mission capable of detecting an earth-sized planet moreover a potentially habitable earth-sized yeah. planet so it was a piece of technology that was launched that that was really new it allowed us to look at the universe in a different way and as a result you know whenever you put a new piece of technology into space or you build a new piece of technology to look at things in a new way you're going to learn a lot yeah even more than you perhaps set out to learn. And certainly that's what Kepler did. So so the way that Kepler finds these planets is to measure the brightnesses of many stars simultaneously. And by many, I mean on the order of 200,000, 150 mm-hmm. to 200,000 stars, taking a brightness measurement simultaneously of all of these stars once every 30 minutes without blinking basically for four years. Like taking in a ton of data. Yeah, it is a lot of data. That's right. Um, And and so what you're looking for in these brightness measurements every 30 minutes is a momentary diminution of light that occurs if a planet eclipses its star. Now, that's not going to happen for all planets that are out there because it requires a certain geometry, right? Yeah. The, The orbit has to be inclined exactly right so that the planet in its orbit about the star casts a shadow that sweeps across the telescope perfectly. Mm -hmm. Yes. And telescope will perceive that shadow as a momentary dimming of light. 
So that's how we infer the existence of these planets, and that's what Kepler set out to do. Yeah, and I think I remember hearing you talk one time about like if you hold your palm at the night sky, you like, like hold it up, that that's kind of like yeah. gives people an idea of the spot yeah, you're we're looking so, into the sky. We're surveying a slice of the galaxy, so we're not looking over the whole entire sky. Yeah. We're looking at about a, a handprint on the sky, which is 100 square degrees, 10 by 10. And we're just looking out about 3,000 light years along the spiral arm of our galaxy. And even thinking of like the science that you get from a space telescope like this, it's like you're bringing in so much data. NASA's looking at that data. The scientific community is looking at this data. I'd imagine that it's like after you've brought this stuff in and shared it, then it's like the, the actual results and papers that come off of this like then happen down that line. And so even after you know, long after the mission's over, you'll probably still have papers coming. Absolutely. Because when people finally get the time to like dig through it all. Oh yeah, so. absolutely. It takes, there's a latency yeah. between the time you collect the data and the time that you that it comes to fruition. And so the number of publications has gradually been ramping up year after year. And I expect even after we turn off the lights and go home, it will continue to ramp up, maybe even for another 10 years or so. There's yeah. a lot of information there yet to be gleaned. So it's like the biggest results may still be still be yet to come. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's just fascinating because even I mean, even sure, I'm sure for you for like your career, it's like you come in like you know looking at the stars, studying the stuff, and like the books that you learned on the textbooks have literally been rewritten. Yeah, that's true. To match the stuff that you found. Yes, it's like it's, that's just literally. I mean, fascinating. we've been asked for figures for new textbooks. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> and that happened really quickly because yeah. it was. Uh, the the change in knowledge was dramatic and quite quick. It was literally like a veil being removed, you know, lifted from your eyes uh, as we r- revealed the small mm-hmm. planets that populate the galaxy that we couldn't see before. Yeah, I mean, I think in, even in some of the more recent, you know, you think of the Trappist announcement and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, I remember listening to you talk one time, and it was the idea that, like, every star, you know, you see in the night sky very likely has at least one planet. Yeah, every you know. sun-like star, yeah, on average has at least one planet. That's what we've learned from Kepler. And then I, then I even kind of wonder, if you look at our own solar system of how many planets we have, you see how what we learned from Trappist, how many planets. Yeah, seven are, planets. System. Exactly. Yeah. Then it makes me wonder, maybe, you know, it's just like that another layer that we just haven't confirmed it yet, but you know. Oh, yeah, know. absolutely. Yeah. Even Kepler. So Kepler's taking a survey of planets that are orbiting from an Earth orbit inward, mm-hmm. right? So the next mission, there, there's a, there is a mission on the books called WFIRST that will launch yes. around 2025 that's going to survey planet populations from kind of an Earth orbit outward. So okay. that will help to complete the planetary census. But, you know, even then there will be parts of parameter space that are still, that we're still blind to. Mm-hmm. For example, oh, we don't really have sensitivity to see a Mars-sized or a Mercury-sized planet out at okay. an Earth-like orbit. Those are really hard to see. Uh, Kepler didn't have the sensitivity to see such tiny worlds, and yet our yeah. solar system has two plus all the dwarf planets, right? <laughs> exactly, so yeah. there's a whole other population of, of objects out there that we don't yet have sensitivity to. And so let's talk a little bit about the, the planets that you have confirmed. I know like the very first 
you know, rocky planet. Right. You had a little something to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That so, was a really special yeah. one. That's you're referring to Kepler 10b. Yeah. It was special because we saw the signal in the first 10 days of data that we collected during the commissioning period. You know, mm. you launch an instrument out into space, or even if you build an instrument for a telescope, you you hook it onto your telescope or you launch it out into space and you have to check it out, make sure everything was still working as yeah. you expected. That period of time is called commissioning. And so we took some data Data during our commissioning period after Kepler launched. And uh, when we examined that data, we saw the signal of Kepler 10b really by eye. I mean, we didn't have to do really? anything fancy. Right? <laughs> it just, it just right popped there. out. It was right there. Yeah. So that was really exciting. And we started following it up with ground-based telescopes right away. And uh, the Keck 10-meter telescope mm-hmm. gave us high-precision radial velocity measurements, which means it detected a Doppler signal. Okay. which allowed us to get the mass. So Kepler, by, by studying the brightnesses, you know, and these eclipses, that gives you the radius of the planet, right? How much the star dims in its light output, it depends on how big the planet is, the, the disk that's blocking the light. The Doppler method tells you yeah. how strongly a planet is pulling gravitationally, how okay, strong that, it's tugging on the star. That wobble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the wobble method, and that tells you about the mass. Well, when you have those two quantities, mass and radius, you can compute the density, which is mass per unit volume. Awesome. And the density tells us something about the composition. And so it was because we had both of those things for Kepler 10b, uh, we were able to pin down its composition as a rocky planet. That's the stuff that I find really exciting. Um, even just thinking of an, in April of this year, uh, when NASA did the, the announcement about like water worlds and stuff, um, where it's not just here's one scientific instrument that has one finding. It's that combination of land-based telescopes, mm-hmm. space telescopes. Sometimes you can even throw in Sophia, a flying telescope. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's like when you start getting all of these data points, then you put it together then there's just stuff that you would have never figured out on your own. That's right. That's right. And these things weren't planned, right? Yeah. I mean, for example, look at the Spitzer Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. Spitzer was not designed to find exoplanets. Yeah. And yet it's been a tremendous complement to the Kepler telescope. Uh, the prime example is the TRAPPIST-1 system. Mm-hmm. The 20 days of observations of Spitzer by Spitzer, by the Spitzer Space Telescope, revealed additional planets in that system that were originally you know, the system was originally identified from the ground. Spitzer opened up another window, and that led to the discovery of three new planets. And then K2, or Kepler, yeah. came in and observed it and pinned down the orbital period and mass of the seventh planet. So, yeah, you, you learn more by putting all of these resources together. So I would, I'm curious to learn, you made reference to, to K2. Uh, tell folks a little bit about the, <laughs> the, the story. Infamous reaction wheels. <laughs> the, the drama that is the, yeah. the Kepler to K2. And also, recently, like, what's going through your head in this process among, from the scientific side when you're like, Yay, we built an instrument. Yay, it's in space. Yay, it works. And also, right. oh no. Yeah, I mean, little things happened along the way. Uh, early on, we lost one of the detectors, and that was within the first year or two. That was disappointing. But, you know, you keep going and kept taking data. We lost one reaction wheel. Uh, okay. 
and but we had redundancy. Had four. Totally. We had four. You need three. You need one reaction wheel to control each axis of rotation. Mm-hmm. Okay. We had four, so we had some redundancy built in, but we did lose one early on. Now we were down to three. (laughs) Um, But we kept going, and honestly, I I really wasn't worried at any point in time. We just kind of kept taking data, and and it was all fine. Um, And then we got to the point where we finished our baseline mission, which was three and a half years. In fact, we went a little over. We took almost to the day four years' worth of data. At that point... I breathed a sigh of relief. relief. I knew the data was in our back pockets. Yeah. We were going to be able to accomplish at least our, our mission. basic mission goals. Yeah. Um, but but again, almost to the day, <laughs> four years. In fact, it was on my birthday. Oh, I was wow. at lunch, sitting down, just about to take a bite of my birthday taco. Nice. I got a uh, text message from our project manager saying that another reaction wheel had died. Oh, no. Yeah. So... Happy you know, birthday. I was I was disappointed, of course, Obviously. because we we had built a, a case up over the preceding months, uh, telling a story that we needed additional data to really get to the true Earth analogs. We were hoping for mm. another four years of data, so I had already internalized that plan, right? <laughs> it was already a fait yeah, accompli. It was, all, it was like, already, uh, yeah, exactly. So we had to rethink that. Um, but I, it didn't concern me. I, yeah. I knew that we had the data that we needed and set about to analyze it. And then there's a happy ending that ter- turns out, that, you know, you have yeah. really smart, you know, creative engineers who you think when they're building a telescope, it has to survive launch. It has to survive these harsh harsh conditions. What I imagine are, have to be very rigid and conservative and, and get things ever so perfectly. But now it's like, hey, you have this thing. Like, what can you do? Be creative. Yeah. We what did think at that, at that moment when we got that text message, we did think like, that was the it. End. That's the yeah. end. Kepler's no longer working. Uh, so it was a great surprise over the ensuing months when the engineers came back and said, you know, I think we can make this work with just the two reaction wheels. Oh, wow. And that was a really a beautiful story that played out uh, mm-hmm. to watch that unfold and see the creativity and innovation that came out. I thought it was a really innovative uh, idea that they came up with. Instead of looking at the one patch that Kepler did, it's almost if you think of it as like a line across the sky or the the elliptic. I guess it's the ecliptic, the ecliptic. yeah, okay. which most people know as the zodiac. It's, it's okay. It's the path that the sun traces out in the sky as the Earth orbits it. Um, so it basically traces out the orbital plane of the planets on the okay. sky. Yeah, and we call that the ecliptic. That's where the zodiacal constellations are located. And does it ever pass with the part where Kepler was originally working no. in? Or is this just nowhere close? No, nowhere close. Yeah, mm. Kepler's field is completely different, orthogonal But, in, but instead of one patch for four years, it's it's covering a lot more territory, but probably just not as it's not spending as much time. It doesn't in those spend areas. as much time at each pointing because uh, the telescope has to be placed in a very specific orientation mm-hmm. relative to the sun. It's basically using solar radiation pressure to stabilize the third axis of rotation. Yeah. So it's like you know the analogy is rowing a boat upstream. You know you point your boat upstream and you're trying to row against the current. You want to keep your boat pointed directly 
upstream. Yeah, if you if you tilt to one side or the other, you're going to start to rotate and you're going to get out of control. So because the telescope has to be pointed in a very specific orientation relative to the sun, as the spacecraft orbits the sun, mm-hmm. it has to move, change its pointing. And, and so it can stay pointing to a specific field of view for about 80 days. And then it's orbited so much around the sun that it has to repoint. It has to change its orientation again in order to maintain that axis of symmetry. Um, So so we're observing these fields across the ecliptic along the zodiac. Um, for about 80 days each, and it's really opened up new areas of science. Yeah. So although we couldn't increase our sensitivity to small planets by observing the same field over and over again, we are learning new things and having new opportunities. We see asteroids, for example, yeah. in the plane of the solar system. We see the planets, Mars, Neptune. We've caught those, you know, observed those. Uh, we find supernovae. We've observed star clusters. We observed the Pleiades, the seven sisters in the Pleiades mm-hmm. that people are probably familiar with. Now, we've learned a lot about those stars from, from the K2 mission. So, I mean, the list just goes on and on. And so talk a little bit about um, what's next in that world of exoplanets. And we have, you, you had already mentioned W1st. Obviously, we have the James Webb telescope that's going up. That's like an infrared telescope, but like you have TESS. Yeah. yeah. Well, I uh, so Kepler was a census. Well, yeah. maybe census is not the right word. Census implies that you're doing an exact counting. Mm-hmm. We're doing more of a poll, mm-hmm. you know, taking a poll of stars in the galaxy to find out what kinds of planets they harbor, right? Um, so the idea was to find out how far you'd have to look before finding an Earth-sized planet that's potentially habitable. Uh, the next thing to do is to find all of the planets that are closest to the Earth. Okay. Um, so we're moving into an era of finding these nearby planets, and that's going to be done with the TESS okay. spacecraft. So there is another mission called TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, that is also employing the transit method to find planets. But and that was very good. Most people have to look up on their phone or look at their notes. <laughs> that was just acronyms. right off the top yeah. of your head. <laughs> you Most got of that. these acronyms are pretty obvious, <laughs> right? The T's got to be transiting. E's got to be, be exoplanet. <laughs> you know space is in there someplace. Yeah, it has to be. Maybe <laughs> right? a system. You know, it's government acronyms. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't uh, blame me if I got an S wrong. I think it's right. So transit method. Yeah, so it's employing the transit method. It's doing what Kepler did. It's doing it with four telescopes at once surveying one slice of the galaxy from the uh, equator to the pole okay it observes that for i think it's something like on the order of a month let's say and then it clocks over and does another strip another longitude strip and then clocks over and does another okay and in this step and stairway it covers the entire northern hemisphere of sky and then the second year it flips and does the southern hemisphere oh, so wow. so okay. it's looking for transiting planets that um you know but across the whole sky and what that means is that you will have more of the nearby stars that you can survey. Whereas Kepler just looked at this one little handprint in the sky, you know, it didn't catch a lot of the nearest stars. Now by surveying the whole sky, we should be able to find a lot of these edge-on systems that are close by. And the reason that we care about them is because we can use the James Webb Space Telescope okay. to do something called transmission spectroscopy, Ooh, which sounds, sounds fancy. really complicated, but it's not. Basically, <laughs> the idea is that you're going to probe 
the composition and structure of the planet's atmosphere. And okay. the way that you're going to do this is you're going to collect light mm-hmm. from the star in your telescope, in the James Webb Space Telescope, you're going to collect light, but you're going to do so when the planet is transiting the disk of the star. So what that means is some of the light from the star is going to filter through that thin layer of atmosphere that, that's oh, yeah. hugging the planet. And in doing so, the atmosphere is going to leave a chemical fingerprint on the light. Okay. So you catch the light, spread it out into a spectrum, and you can find the atmospheric diagnostics. You can find those chemical fingerprints in the light and learn something about the atmosphere. This is like a flashback to like a, a physical science class in college <laughs> where they're lighting things on fire and you look through a certain – and they have oh, different yeah. colors. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. the colors exactly. you can – like, okay, this is oxygen or this is nitrogen. You can find that composition. Exactly. That's the same idea. I guess. Yeah, when you spread the light out into a spectrum, you see it has – very specific patterns. Yeah. Uh, it's not just a rainbow. Imposed upon that rainbow of light that comes from the star will be places where you have less brightness mm-hmm. because the atmosphere has eaten away some of the light of, at that particular color. And which colors get eaten away depends on what elements are in the atmosphere and what their temperature is and pressure and all of those kinds of things. So, uh, so we will learn about the composition, the pressure, the temperature of an atmosphere, the scale height or how thick it is. Um, these are the things that we're hoping to under, to, to learn. Yeah. Um, and, and also just what the diversity of atmospheres yeah. are. Um, so we hope to do that with the James Webb Space Telescope um, and potentially even for a planet as small as Earth. That's what we're hoping. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a stretch for that telescope, but it's possible if we get really lucky. If we find a system, even like TRAPPIST-1, mm-hmm. that system is probably just close enough that if the atmosphere is thick enough, we should be able to find features with the James Webb Space Telescope for those planets. So that's what we're hoping. How does that map out for you? I mean, you've been working on Kepler for so long. Does it transition into like other missions, other projects, other things? Like how does yeah, how's um, that world how does that work out? <laughs> Good question. Like, right now I? I'm really focused on Kepler. Yeah. Uh, we are finishing up and delivering our very final catalog. So we've done our very final last data processing and searched that data for planets and combed through it and classified things as false positives or planet candidates, et cetera. And we are just now poised to release our final catalog, including all of the different bias measurements that you have to to do in order to transform the discoveries into what you an estimate of what the intrinsic population of planets is out in the galaxy. Yeah. So that requires some bias measurements. You know, you have to quantify, and we're really hard at work doing that. We have to be done with this by the end of September of mm-hmm. this year. That's when we'll pack up and go home and or stop <laughs> analyzing the. Um, the prime mission data. But even as, as you said, it's like as that data comes in, it's like there's still going to be papers and stuff found by l- sifting through all this information for well, you know, yeah. years Well, yeah, I mean, come. that's exactly what we're doing. We're actually yeah. delivering data products to the scientific community with the yeah. hope that we will catalyze new science over the next decade. So our task at hand is not to do the science ourselves necessarily, although we are doing that as of well. Course. But the task, my priority, is to catalyze science, to deliver products that are valuable to the community that they can work on in the future. 
to make these new discoveries. So I would be remiss if I didn't embarrass you a little bit. So uh, recently, a well-known magazine, <laughs> the Time 100 Most Influential People. Oh, goodness, yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank it's you like, very much. I, I, I always think is not only is that insanely cool, like, I mean, Obviously for you, but obviously for for NASA and for yes, for the, the field, for saying and even that, for yes. for Ames, it's like for everything. It's just like so insanely for, amazing for exoplanet science. Yes, yes. thank you. Um, I but, I'm gonna really try figure? hard to own this, okay? <laughs> Which is not my character. <laughs> but it's also it's like like tell us about the like like what goes through your head? Do you get like a text message, an email? Do you uh, it see a, it coming? I'll Are you suspicious? You. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was an email, and it was such a short, like matter of fact email that my family and colleagues said, wait, is this like a joke? Like, are they messing with <laughs> like, you? Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we did have to kind of do a sanity check. We checked the uh, host of the computer that the email came from to make sure that it made sense. <laughs> Let's check that IP was, address. <laughs> yeah, right. It was a very nondescript email. Um, I mean, it was wonderful. It was a surprise, of course. A little uncomfortable. I do feel embarrassed about it, simply because, you know, the scientific process or the, the, the projects, I should say, that people mm. are trying to do in modern times are every year more and more complex and require hundreds of experts to to make them come to fruition, right? Everything from the detection of gravity waves to the Higgs boson to to Earth-sized exoplanets, right? These things do not happen in a vacuum like Einstein, you know, working (laughs) decades ago, a century ago. So it is, it does feel a little uncomfortable. Discombobulating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't like it. The recognition really belongs to the entire Kepler team. So let's just Get and that it's a huge <laughs> kudos for the team and for the science for yeah, everything. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's That's awesome. the way I like to think about yeah. it. Um, that said, I think it's fantastic that a spotlight, a tiny spotlight, has been shined on exoplanet research Definitely. because the discoveries that are being made are fabulous. They're fantastic, and I would love to for more people to learn about them and take this journey with us and understand the discoveries that are being made and how cool they are and mm-hmm. start to imagine all of these worlds as actual destinations that's what i'm i'm hoping happens that it will raise a certain curiosity and and let people inspire people to go learn more yeah. and so talk a little bit about that i mean you went to a big gala in new york that was really fun it was yeah. a huge treat it felt a little self-indulgent but it was a it was a great treat um uh, a little overwhelming there were lots of really interesting people there. You know, the list is actually a weird mix of names, right? You've got people that do all kinds of different things. Some of them are making positive influences. Some of them are making not so positive influences. So it's <laughs> it's a little, like, a, you know, it's a mixed it's very bag. Very diplomatic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so there's that. Uh, but I was really excited just to get to know the people and what they're doing. It was very surreal. It was very overwhelming. You know, you know that there's a lot of well-known people there, but it's so out of context that you don't recognize them, um, you know, and and so... It's like, I I see you on a TV. You look familiar, but when you see somebody in person, it's... It's completely different. So a lot of um, the processing has gone on after the fact, you know, as I've seen the pictures and recalled the people in the space and... And learned more about them. You know, I didn't have a lot of time. They didn't give us a lot of time to learn about who was going to be there. The whole list was under embargo, so I knew I was on it. But I didn't even know that there were two other exoplanet scientists on the list. Yes, exactly. Until right before. (laughs) So 
Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So for folks who are listening, who have questions for Natalie, want to get more in the weeds on any kind of exoplanet stuff, um, we're always at NASA Ames, but I also have to give a, a shout out to at NASA Kepler, uh, another Twitter account. We use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Um, you'll find anything and all that you can think of for, for Kepler for exoplanets uh, you know, over at NASA.gov. But Natalie, this is so wonderful that like talking to hear your stories. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.